Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to 1,000 Recordings Podcast, episode 55. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me, as always every week, is the last surviving member of the Rat Pack, Mitchell Davis. What's up? <laughs> Not much. How's it going? It's it's going good. I'm glad to be back and uh, doing another show with you. It's yeah, awesome. it's been a long time. Seems yeah. like uh, busy, both yep. of us, obviously. Yep, yep. Here and there. So again, if someone out there wants to pay us to do this, we can do it every week. Yeah, so, I would. I would take money. I'm not ashamed. Yeah, get on that, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> get on that. Um, yeah. So this week we have a really diverse show of stuff. Um, we're starting out with uh, our last album of Miles Davis, his "Bitches Brew." Then we're going to move on to Sammy Davis Jr., and then finally we're going to end with an opera of Claude Debussy. So. A lot yeah, of very different stuff. <laughs> that's that's about as diverse as, as we can usually get, I yeah, guess. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, bitches brew. This is uh, this is a big one, man. A lot of a lot of stuff we can talk about, <laughs> you know, musically and just uh, uh, stuff surrounding the album, um, post album and pre album, the reactions to the album. Um, there's a lot of stuff you can talk about with this record. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I I think it's uh, it's it's really like, you know, obviously one of the records that helped define, you know, uh, Miles Davis and his, his his legacy, so to speak, to where he was uh, he was very willing to try new things, and and still you know have a a spirit surrounding him, especially with the musicians that play on this record to where it, it wasn't undisciplined, so to speak, you know, but, but it was going to be, you know, truly something sort of, sort of new. I mean, especially where it came to, to making music, you know, in the jazz sense, you know, which a lot of people, obviously, but you talked about, you know, the after, you know, people are saying is this really jazz you know yeah you know so yeah it, it had uh hugely mixed reactions um some people hated it some people loved it a lot of people in the jazz community were very vocal about how much they hated it <laughs> and yeah. uh how you know it wasn't jazz and you know it was a lot of people um made really derisive comments about it oh, yeah. um yeah, uh, and some were like mixed. I, I like Duke Ellington's reaction. Duke Ellington called uh, or referred to Miles Davis as the Picasso of jazz. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. Which is sort of, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, you can sort I of. I think that's a high compliment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this is this album was done in, in typical fashion of other records that were done around the same time where uh, Miles Davis would sort of call in all the musicians on very short notice yeah. and uh, he would give them very, very minimal 
direction you know maybe like a tempo he'd like tap out a tempo give him maybe a few chords maybe a fragment of melody here and there but that was pretty much it and 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 while the piece was going on he would give verbal directions and uh, if you listen to the whole album with headphones like during the quiet sections you can actually hear him sometimes giving these directions to uh to different musicians and giving cues and um sort of directing you know almost like a conductor Uh, yeah that and that's see that's the kind of thing where a lot of people you know the the so-called purists that's like a no-no you know (laughs) you 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 hear people on the record you know talking and i mean or you're like you say you hear miles talking and i mean and it's you know he to me that that's what i love about miles is he really didn't care (laughs) <laughs> you know, no, he didn't. He, he, yeah. he was so on another level in a lot of ways to where he knew that there were some people that I'm, I'm sure going into this people that were really going to hate this. Some people who were just totally confused and not, you know, what what is this? And then some people were, who were going to be like, you know, wow, you know, yeah, what a breakthrough, you know. What a, and I mean, I, I, I liken Miles mm. Davis to some, some other people that, that were not scared to like step out. Okay. Like Stanley Kubrick, you know, when he made 2001, I mean, he, he was just on his own level where he had to kind of sort of make his craft for himself. And that's what Miles Davis, I, I think of him in the same way. He, he really had contemporaries that he could, you know, bounce ideas off of. Obviously, you know, the people in the studio, you know, you know, Chick Corea and, you know, John McLaughlin and, you know, Benny Maupin. I mean, some of these some of these people that he brought in, it's like a murderer's row of musicians, not just jazz musicians, but musicians who were so creative and so not afraid yeah. to to deal with what Miles had in a concept to where, like you said, they didn't know. You know, and he wanted that. He wanted that element of, you know, what's under my feet? What am I standing on? They they had no clue, a lot of them. Yeah. And and, and I don't even think re- realistically some of this Miles didn't know until like, you know, like you said, in the end process where they start sifting through and going through and, and layering and editing. Then all of a sudden you, you have this this completed process but but before that it was just like you know let's just get in here and and play around and 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 you know see what happens you know yeah. that's that's so so miles yeah well <laughs> but know? yeah and the thing is none of them knew <clears throat> you know like you said but the important thing is unlike many jazz musicians at the time they all got it yeah and that's the important thing you know they they all got it they all got what miles wanted and you can tell, I mean, listening to this, they all get it. So, you yeah. know, they all get it, yeah, well, the, the concept totally. Yeah. 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 Especially once the, once everything starts to flow. And I think that's another thing about this record is it, it is the flow of it, even where, you know, it seems like a, a song would just go on where, where you don't, a lot of this, you don't even hear miles for like long periods of time. <laughs> Yeah. But he he's there still at the center of everything. Yeah. You know, well, that's how bad a dude he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's one track on here called John McLaughlin that he doesn't even play on at all. 
Exactly. He just sort of, exactly. just sort of directs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, one interesting thing about how, you know, how he put together this group, you know, it is, it is classified technically as like a jazz big band because of the number of people. And actually in 1971, it won the Grammy for best jazz, like large ensemble performance. Um, but what he did is he took the big band and turned it around, like flipped it. So basically a, a, a typical big band would be like, you'd have this little rhythm section. It'd be like one piano, a uh, drum set and bass, and maybe a guitar, you know, maybe, but it usually be that just those three things. And then there'd be a bunch of melody instruments, like a bunch of saxophones, a bunch of trombones, trumpets, right? So in here it's reversed. He has the rhythm ensemble is the, this huge rhythm ensemble you know he's got he's got two bass players one electric bass and one upright bass he's got two or three drummers he's got two or three electric piano players and a percussionist so most of this band is like this huge rhythm section yeah um and of course guitar the john mclaughlin um yeah and uh then he's got um a few melody instruments himself on trumpet um uh you, you mentioned bernie malpin he's playing uh bass clarinet which is really mm-hmm. unusual yeah and wayne shorter um uh, playing a lot of soprano saxophone on this record um wayne shorter is just an amazing yeah wayne wayne, amazing and, wayne and Benny. player and composer yeah um, wayne and Benny both yeah, yeah they yeah you, like i said the 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 people the talent you know, even then, but I mean, obviously now, you know, future forward, all these guys that, you know, they're all like icons, but back then it was just like, it was this huge all-star team of players mm-hmm. that you're like, are you kidding me? And all at the, some of them at the very last minute, that, that in itself, you let's kind of let you know, Miles already had this vision, <laughs> you know, yeah. to bring in who he knew. Okay. Like, like, like Joe, Joe Zawinu. I mean, He's another guy who who just he had so much talent, so much that he could do outside of just being your a traditional piano player, you know, that he he could he could really vibe off of what Miles could. It's it was almost as if I, I thought about this the other day, when you're going into outer space, not that I'm, you know, an astronaut, but but those guys have a a science of how they deal with stuff. But even when they get out there, there are certain things that come up that they don't expect that they have to be smart enough or talented enough to deal with kind of on the fly. And that's what I think of with this record. It's like some guys that, you know, were going into outer space, you know, but, but knew even with, you know, their level of talent, there were going to be things that would come up that they would kind of have to adjust on the fly and be talented enough to go with miles, to go with the plan and, and kind of figure it out and stay, in the scheme of it all and it seems to really work you know in a way that you know i i don't even know if they expected it to be like this you know i mean i mean at the end it's just it's a really brilliant brilliant record yeah (laughs) on so many levels the the atmosphere that comes from some of these songs is 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 crazy Mm -hmm. you know and like Mm -hmm. you said the 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 rhythm is is huge in a, in a lot of this where you 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 get almost into a trance 
in some of these songs and, and how, you know, they're able to kind of be on the same page with each other and, and kind of experiment, you know, with, with different things. Yes. And, um, you know, just like you said, very, very good. Wayne Shorter, like you said, Wayne Shorter is, is very, very good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, the first track we're going to listen to an excerpt of is from Pharaoh's Dance. And this is actually one of two tracks on the record that is not by Miles Davis. This is a Joe Zawinul tune. Um, he was one of the electric piano players. Um, another, like you said, another giant, you know, yeah. played with a yeah. bunch of different people. Um, and the part that I'm going to play is about, I don't know, almost nine minutes in. But I thought it was interesting because you can audibly hear some of the stuff they did in the studio. So like they uh, use a lot of studio techniques. They were coming up at the time, a lot of uh, effects and tape looping and, uh, you know, editing takes together to sort of uh, create a piece out of different pieces, you know, create. A, yeah. And um, you can audibly hear tape looping in this section so you can hear somebody's voice I, I can't i don't think it's miles and then you can hear that repeated as this tape loop goes on about five or six times it's kind of interesting <laughs> um and uh you know i mean miles playing on this record well this track and this whole record it's very different you know it's it's not cool it's not bebop it's not quite free jazz you know it's sort of sporadic and fragmented and he'll sort of jump up into the extreme high range of the of the trumpet and um and you'll also hear some of the bass clarinet on this on this excerpt but uh yeah what do you think of pharaoh's dance yeah it's it's a lot of what you said the especially the fragmentation part i i i think it's just a a way for miles to to try to really go somewhere where no, not 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 just go somewhere where no one else had gone, but somewhere where he maybe himself couldn't really conceive, you know, until he got there. And I mean that that sounds a little kooky, but you know it's it's like making a record. I mean that's I mean reading the Wikipedia page about this. Uh, Tom York from Radiohead talks about when he made OK Computer, they took an influence from this album where it's like you make a record. And then sort of tear it apart, you know, and, and deliberately watch it fall apart to create something new. And I mean, that's what a lot of this was, where the original sessions sound nothing like the end result. Yes. And this is a, yes. a, a good example of that, like you said, where the, the tape loops come in and, and you, you actually hear that in the process. And you're like, well, um, I mean, and unless you listen, listen really close, I mean, you may not really notice it, but um that's kind of ballsy, you know, to yeah. to come up with that and, and expect to, you know, go into a studio and and hope that it works and, and hope that your label isn't like, you know, what the hell are y'all doing? You know, <laughs> that that's a process. I mean, where where Miles Davis had he had stones like probably nobody else to where he could do yeah. crazy stuff like that and, and play it in front of an audience, too. That's another thing. Where where these songs when they were they played live, I'm sure some people were they walked out like what in the hell is this you know, and then some probably were totally fascinated. I mean, and this this track is a great example where it, it goes on 
for you know so long and you know if you if you can't get into it if you can't vibe to it yeah you're you're gonna like well no so yeah and that's like you said just miles kind of probably got to a point where it's like you know if i don't have an audience i'm playing for myself you know that's yep. that's how it is to be yeah yep. yeah let's check this out this first track from bitches brew this is pharaoh's dance heard pharaoh's dance and uh you know a lot of those studio techniques that we were talking about um you know we're already going on in rock and pop music we talked about it a lot uh, we talked about the beatles when they recorded um sergeant pepper and also beach boys when they recorded pet sounds we're doing a lot of that kind of stuff but that had never ventured into the jazz world before and uh especially not especially not like this yeah 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 um yeah the next one we're gonna listen to is called spanish key and uh you know this one was i don't know it was, it was a to me it was a little less abstract kind of groovy and funky um and you can really hear that large rhythm section in this one just like chugging along like full force mm-hmm. um but I thought it was a very cool track. Um, yeah, what did you think of Spanish Key? Um, 
I I believe, like you said, the 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 rhythm in in this. I I think Miles was was definitely influenced in a lot of ways by by African music in the in the sense to where you 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 hear that that groove it it's familiar with a lot of the things you hear in African music and I think he wanted to kind of bring that in along with rock elements along with you know the, you know the the electric elements of rock and jazz and um kind of play with them and and the funk side of it and just kind of see what would happen you know and in a lot of ways you know like that it goes back to the criticism of some of the record where some people just it just sounds like he doesn't know what he wants to do you know but in a way that's that's kind of right i guess <laughs> but but not really i mean I, i'm pretty sure he had an idea you know but it's just the end result did he know what it was going to sound like probably not but i think he in 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 general had a, a focus of where he wanted to go and and then this is this is indicative of, of a lot of the, the record where that, like you said, that rhythm is kind of the focus. Um, but, yeah. um, yeah, you know, just like you said, very cool track. Um, you know, you know, kind of one of the more groovy tracks. I mean, some of the, some of the record obviously is really moody, you know, but this is one that's, that's not quite that moody, you know, yeah. actually not moody at all. But, um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And this record, you know, importantly spawned, a whole genre that went on in the set that was very popular in the seventies, the whole fusion genre, yeah, which was, yeah. uh, you know, meant a fusion of jazz and rock sensibilities. Um, yeah. and yeah, it's just a, a super important album. Um, are you ready yeah. to listen to this? Yeah. I, one thing I'd like to say that obviously, you know, one of the guys on this record, Benny, Benny Moffin, who, you know, played a huge role. I think this, this is sort of like, a predecessor to another big fusion record that we will talk about later uh, was, was Herbie Hancock's Headhunters record, um, which, I mean, in a lot of senses was not so much jazz, but kind of more rock and funk at times and, and had, you know, definitely strong rhythm. I, I think of these records, you know, you know, in the same way where that record also, it was, it was major in, in breaking through a lot of people's minds what jazz could be, you know, and, you know, anyway, that will, that's a whole nother show, obviously. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's just, uh, like I said, I, I, I so love the people assemble on this record. Some of them are heroes to me. Like I, obviously Benny, Joe, who, who, who was, who was so instrumental in taking, you know, what people could do with their voice <laughs> on records. I mean, he, he's one of the most, innovative guys himself you know to to be in jazz i mean he, he's deceased now but when he was when he was doing it he he took what miles did and and ran in his own direction and i think that's that's one thing about this record there's there's so many great people assembled on this yeah that were influenced by miles's mentality and and his drive to be different to challenge to to even like you know just kind of jump into the abyss sometimes where you know i'm not afraid i'm gonna do this and 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 we're gonna see what happens and and that that's that's so missing in music now (laughs) you know yeah i mean there's there's some of it but but not like not quite like this i mean on the level that he was doing it to me i mean it's you know anyway 
Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, let's check out this last track from Bitches Brew. This is Spanish Key. <laughs> heard Spanish Key and we're going to move on to our second artist Sammy Davis Jr. his album I Got a Right to Swing from 1960 and uh, you know Sammy Davis had a, a storied life um, he was part of the infamous Rat Pack in the 60s yeah. which included Frank Sinatra and uh, Dean Martin and uh, who else oh those other dudes Jerry um, Lewis um, I always forget that one guy I'm so embarrassed <laughs> but yeah the, the they 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 ruled Vegas for so long I mean yeah oh, the so-called Rat Pack and, Joey, and Vegas Joey Bishop and Peter Joey Lawford. Bishop there you go there you go yeah <laughs> Peter Lawford I, I totally forgot about Peter Lawford um, they were they were entertainment, you know, kings <laughs> yeah. during that, that period. And, and, and so talented, all of them, where they didn't just sing or 
or entertained comedy wise. I mean, they did so many, especially Sammy Davis Jr. He he was a multi layered guy. He was so talented. I mean, brilliant, brilliant, yeah. brilliant, but simply brilliant. I mean, obviously, I mean, we're obviously we're talking about him singing here. And and singing wasn't his best attribute, I think. I mean, he was an amazing dancer. Yes. God, he could dance. <laughs> I mean, just a killer tap dancer, yeah. a a killer. I mean, choreographer, if you will, where he could he could get people to to move and dance in in such an amazing way. I mean, you know, just a, a flat out, you know, amazing talent, Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. Well, he he could also do comedy he could also act um he had yeah uh m- yeah yep. many many different talents um yeah major impressionist <laughs> he, he was real good at impression right that that's something i didn't know until yep. i did this research i didn't know he was also an impressionist yeah that's yep. interesting um <clears throat> yeah you know uh, back in the 60s or late 50s and 60s and uh in show business and in uh in Las Vegas, you know, he had to contend with a lot of racism and oh yeah, um, and segregation and stuff. It's amazing to read, you know, stuff he had to go through and, you know, uh, in the early days how he was, you know, he was part of the Rat Pack and performed with him and all this stuff. But at the same time, he was segregated from them. Yeah. Um, which is another thing I didn't know, which is, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. It's a, really, really, really it's ironic. Where, yeah, yeah, he on on stage. I mean, he was beloved, but once he came off that stage, yeah, it, it got very real. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, he and, couldn't. And go ahead. Was still able to kind of, you know, thrive, even though he had to deal with that on a daily basis. I mean that that's another testament to him, you know that that makes his legacy all that more amazing. You know where he. You know, obviously, I'm sure that wasn't easy, but it seemed like in the end, it didn't make him bitter, you know? Yeah. Um, Because he he led an amazing life. I mean, he was he was one of the greatest entertainers that's really this planet will ever see. And and to have the kind of life that he had, especially in Vegas in that period, not a lot of people will ever really experience anything like even though that's another thing about this this article about him in this book where they talk about him and Frank Sinatra and their, their relationship. He kind of was in Frank's shadow, you know, throughout cause Frank was just larger than life, but it's, it was, it was like in basketball where you live in the Michael Jordan era, you know, where there's just one, there's just one guy who's like the man and you're just kind of like, you have to deal with that. If it, if it had not been for Frank Sinatra, I mean, you know, who knows, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. might've been the man cause he was just that talented, yeah, yeah. if not maybe more in some senses than Frank. You know, but that's that was just his ilk, you know, and like I said, he could have been very bitter about that. But he he never really I never got that from him. I never got that. from Yeah. Sammy, yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, speaking of the segregation thing, you know, he would, like you said, be on stage with all of them and then get off stage and they would all go to their, you know, penthouse suites or whatever in the hotel or go to the hotel restaurant and hang out or do whatever. He couldn't do that mm-hmm. because he he wasn't allowed to stay in the hotels. He wasn't allowed to eat in the restaurants. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just unbelievable. But uh, yeah. 
Um, let's see. The first track that we're going to... Oh, wait. Another thing I wanted to mention, which I thought was just crazy, was um, uh, in uh, 57 or 58, around that time, um, he, you know, throughout his life, he was involved with a lot of different ladies and stuff you know oh yeah <laughs> and uh and uh, put, it, put it lightly yes yeah <laughs> and in 57 or, or 57 58 something like that he was involved with this actress named kim novak um yeah, she was oh, yeah. in oh, yeah. yeah like like some a lot of movies back then and hitchcock mm-hmm. movies and stuff oh yeah, uh, yeah. white blonde mm-hmm. woman beautiful yeah beautiful, beautiful. woman and uh, the uh, head of Columbia Studios, his name was Harry Cohn, uh, thought this would would impact their studio negatively. You know, mm-hmm. having him being in this public interra- interracial relationship. So what he did is he called his friend, who was a mobster, Johnny Roselli. How can you have like a more mobster <laughs> name than that? Um, and uh, he was asked. Um, to tell Davis to stop having this affair with Novak. And so he arranged for Davis to be kidnapped by mobsters to scare him. Unbelievable. And, and like they, they threatened him to basically like put out his one good eye. So he, he, he lost one of his eyes in a car accident in, uh, in the fifties. So they threatened to put out his other eye and, you know, do all this bodily harm to him. Just because he was dating somebody, Kim Novak, yeah, yeah. and and by yeah, she she was a she was a major Hollywood star, yeah. So yeah, to have to have that kind of nastiness behind the scenes, so to speak, you know, yeah, that that's also a testament to, like I said, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. He's a class act to yeah. me. He's yeah. he's he is a really a, an American icon, you know, to where he he was okay. That's another thing. He was really big on civil rights, huge on civil rights, you know, where he he would speak out against, you know, all kinds of, you know, terrible things that were going on to to black people in that time. Things that he was dealing with himself, you know, whereas, you know, you know, you have a lot of entertainers that would shy away from that. He did not, you know. Yeah. And um, that's one of those things I, I, I love about him as well, you know. He he would roll with with Jesse Jackson back in the day when Jesse Jackson had, you know, Operation Push and all that going on, and um, you know, for a lot of entertainers, you know, that can be sort of like a bad thing, you know, where people will move away from you and shy away from you, and you you don't get as much work. But but anyway, you know, um, back to the musical side because <laughs> he's another guy who he's he's such an iconic figure. We could talk about him, you know, a whole show. I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. Al- al- along with everybody that that's that's lined up on this show, there's three really kind of iconic figures. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, Sammy Davis Jr. I have a a tremendous amount of respect for the man. Um, I really do. Um, yeah. Anyway. yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, the first track we're going to listen to is "You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You," and uh, this is one of his signature tunes. And this is uh, one that was recorded live from a show in Vegas. And it's cool, I think, because it, it really just perfectly captures his presence on stage and the sort of vibe he created. I mean, you can almost see yourself in this sort of smoke-filled theater, you know, in the 60s, sitting there uh, watching this. 
and uh, he not only sings the song, but you know, you can his personality comes across. Yeah, you know, in this. Um, what did you think of this? Well, I, I like what you said about his personality. It's almost like even though he's singing, there there are some points in the song where it's it's almost like he's dialoguing as well mm-hmm. while he sings the song. And and that's that's really not easy to do where you're you're on a stage, it's live, you're singing, you got a good pitch, but it's almost like you break out of that that rhythm and almost start talking like you're you're like, oh by the way, you know, to the audience directly, but still stay in in the mood, so to speak, to where you know everything is everything is still there you know every the the song is still there the melody the harmony the atmosphere you know he was that charismatic you know (laughs) where he could he could do that and get away with that and um and still make it you know seem flawless um that's that's not something i think you can really teach you know either you have that or you don't and then like you said sammy had that kind of presence especially on stage where he could just really be himself and be this tremendous entertainer at the same time, you know, and seem to be so relaxed, <laughs> so so in in tune with everything, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's like I said, that's that's not easy. That's something either you have that or you don't. And he really had it. I mean, yes, he did. So, yeah. Yeah, well let's let's listen to this. One of his signature tunes, You're Nobody Till Somebody Not Loves till You. Somebody loves you. So snatch yourself somebody to love. You ain't nobody. Not till somebody loves you. Till somebody cares Well, you may be the king You may even possess A Learjet and all that gold But gold ain't gonna get you any happiness Not when you're tired, you're getting wrinkly And feeling old, don't you know The world will be the same you try to change it not as long as the stars shine above you ain't nothing you ain't nobody not till somebody tells you that I love you so find yourself somebody to heard you're nobody till somebody loves you and we're going to move on to another one of his signature tunes i've got to be me yeah so yeah i've got to be this is the studio recording um yeah what do you think of this one i've got to be me uh it sounds very polished um 
the the orchestra, if you will, or the the symphonic sound, the background. It, it, I mean, this sounds like a song that, you know, some people might, I mean, call it, I guess, corny or, or smaltzy or whatever. But it was, it was just one of those songs that the, at that time, that's what, that's what was going on with the radio. That's how how standards, especially, because there were a lot of people that sang this song. And the thing about Sammy Davis Jr., even with the whole the pop sounding side of it and and all that, he still had a way of taking this song and making it his, almost as if nobody else had sang it before. You know, even if the arrangement was similar or whatever, you know, it was still Sammy Davis Jr. like he was gonna sing it and and even make it new. You know, with with the way that he sang it, the way his voice sounded. Yeah. You know, that's that's an incredible talent too. Where where somebody can do that, they can take a song that's been you know a standard, so to speak, or a song that's been done a lot, and then make it fresh. You know, make it. You know, it's like you know what I've I've never imagined that song being like that before. I mean, that's that's another thing about him. His thumbprint was was very unique, very special. You know, people look forward to, you know, well, let's hear what Sammy, you know, is going to sound like when he does this song, you know, you know, that's, that's a cool thing about him and, and, and this song and the way he did it. Yeah. Well, also, you know, and you mentioned that other singers did this and, you know, Frank Sinatra did this and stuff. Um, but when Sammy Davis is doing it and, you know, coupled with everything that was going on in the civil rights movement and all the stuff he was dealing mm. with, it's almost like it takes on a, another level of meaning. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. It. Very you know? good point. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know if that was intended, but um, I don't know. It's kind of the sense that I got. Yeah, um, and I, I I didn't think about that, but that's I, I like that. I, I think you may be right. You know, you may be right because it, it it's not the same if if Frank Sinatra sings this and then Sammy sings it and you right. think about that, I right. mean, it's, you know, it's definitely not the same. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, yeah. yeah, that's, that's a cool point. I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, you mentioned like the production and stuff. I mean, the production value is, is very much of the time, you know, it's exactly how, the production is exactly how what you would hear on like a, a Sinatra record or uh, any one of these records, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. It's just it's got this certain atmosphere, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that you just kind of have to hear, but yeah, it's it's very KQUE. Which I, whenever I say that, it's Houston had a local station here, KQUE, that was on air for years. That all they played was was Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr., Barbara Streisand. Bing Crosby, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and the only reason I really know, my I'm the guy that cut my hair pretty much most of my life, this was a radio station he played, you know, even though it was a, it was basically what you would call a black barbershop in a black neighborhood, you know. <laughs> my, my barber said that he was, he was what you call a cultured Negro. And that, those are huh. his words. Yeah. And he yeah. said, this is, this was the music I grew up listening to. I love jazz. I love standards. If you don't like it, you need to go to get your hair cut in a different shop. <laughs> and really, honestly, that's that's one of the things that influenced me as a kid, where I, I heard plenty of Sammy Davis Jr., plenty of Frank Sinatra, you know, Dean Martin. I heard plenty of that in his shop, you know, whether I wanted to or not. And I mean, 
it was it was great. I loved it. I mean, Nat King Cole, you know, yeah, yeah. and it just gives you a, a, a rounded view of what music can be and and what you know. Anyway, you know, back to Sammy, um, what the music of that time was like. I mean, it it was big orchestras. It was lush arrangements. You know, it was standards. You know, it was it was you know smalls. I, I keep seeing that word. I mean, you know, that's just how it was. And I mean, you could take that for what it was and 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 put your stamp on it, put your, you know, your spin on it, you know, and then go from there. And and, and Sammy had a, a terrific spin, you know, it, it, especially growing up in an area where, you know, like you said, Sinatra was king. You know, he was he was just one of those guys that you know, he was always at the head of the pack, you know, but but even with that, like I said, it, it was OK because Sammy had his niche, too. Mm-hmm. You know, S- Sammy did fine. Sammy did more than fine. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, it seems like your barber would have identified with this one. So we'll dedicate this to him. Yeah. This is <laughs> I've Got to Be Me by Sammy Davis, Jr. Whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong Whether I find a place in this world or never belong I gotta be me I gotta be me What else can I be but what I am? I want to live, not merely survive And I won't give up this dream of life that keeps me alive I gotta be me, I gotta be me The dream that I see makes me A world of success is waiting for me if I heed the call. I won't settle down, won't settle for less. As long as there's a chance that I can have it all, I'll go it alone. We just heard I've Gotta Be Me, and we're going to move on to our last album for this episode. Claude Debussy, French composer, his opera, Pelias et Melisande, um, from, uh, I think I didn't write this down. I think it was written in 1908, something like that. Um, And this recording is from 1941 by the Yvonne Gouvert Symphony Orchestra, Roger Desolmier conducting <laughs> and uh, I guess one interesting historical tidbit about this particular recording is that it was recorded during the Nazi occupation of Paris or of France during World War II um, yeah so apparently this was like performed for Nazis yeah, and uh, recorded during that time they were occupying 
Paris. Um, and uh, this this opera, you know, as well as Claude Debussy himself, you know, was it was groundbreaking. It was influential. Um, and uh, Debussy, he had a tough time in his life because his music um sort of like the bitches brew album that we heard you know it was there was a lot of people that didn't like it at all and thought it was you know oh this isn't you know classical music this is noise this is this is rubbish it doesn't make any sense you know and and so he had a lot of people that were standing in his way that that didn't want his music performed and he had a difficult time with it, and he had a difficult time getting this this uh, opera staged until finally, you know, one person, one guy that liked his music uh, became head of this opera company and finally staged it. Um, do you have any overall thoughts about this? Or, Well, one, one thing that I, I took from listening to the tracks and, um, and what the book is saying is it, it really does not sound like what I think opera normally sounds like. I mean, in, in my mind, which I, I don't listen to a lot of opera, but when I hear this, I don't, I don't think, you know, opera right away. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of like what the book says. It's, it's, it's like the, the, the vibe you get when you think about what's going on in nature, like in the woods when nobody's there, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. c- kind of really peaceful things, things happening, you know, the way they happen, rivers flow, you know, wind blowing through the trees. I mean, I re- realistically, even before I read, was reading the book, that's kind of what I thought listening to this. And I, I guess that's obviously where he took his inspiration for a lot of it or some of it. I mean, you know, I was like, okay, well, that, that seems about right, you know. And maybe, like you said, that's one of the reasons why, you know, so many people initially were kind of like, you know, no, this is this is not the the style of, of classical music or, or opera that that we're used to or that we want or what we even think is right. You know? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, you know, doing an you know ne- next week we have more Debussy and I'm going to talk more about him like personally next week but this okay. week I kind of wanted to focus on the opera itself because you know making an opera and producing an opera during this time the only modern analogy we would have is making a, a movie because <clears throat> you have the interesting thing about you know reading about the opera and the creation of it and all this stuff that they went through is there's uh, you know, many, many creative hands that get into the opera because it's such a huge production, right? So just like a movie, like, you know, the the script writer writes the script and they have a certain vision for the movie. And then the script is bought by the studio and the studio has a vision for it. Then they bring in a director and the director has a vision for it. Then they might have some big actors and those actors have things, you know, that they want to bring to the table and you know and by the time all those hands get into it it could be completely changed from the original script that was written yeah you know um and that's often what happens with opera you know uh where you have all these hands in it and and uh, uh directors and producers and um 
you know, you have basically when you have opera, you have usually two people working on it um, initially. You have a composer that's writing the music and then you have what's called a librettist, which is writing. It's called the libretto. It's like the script, right? <clears throat> so this is, you know, the same. You had Debussy writing the music and sort of conceiving the opera, you know, which was based on this play by another Frenchman named Maurice Maeterlinck. Um, and uh, then you had a librettist writing the libretto. So right right away, you have this trio. You have the composer, you have the librettist, and you have the original playwright, right, who all have their hands in this thing. Okay. Okay. Then you have the impresario who's going to put on the, the not the ballet, the, the opera. You okay. Know? So he has his hands in it. Then there's a director that has, he has his hands in it, right? And mm-hmm. then there's like a set designer and there's singers and stuff. They all have their hands in it. So... Um, you know, it's interesting to read the sort of back and forth of just getting this opera produced and the stuff that happened. Like, for instance, um, you know, when Debussy was working with the original playwright, Maeterlinck, um, uh, initially it was all cool, like, like totally congenial. Maeterlinck was like, yeah, you can, you can use my play. You can make any cuts you want. You can do this. You can do that. He was totally cool with everything. Right. Initially. (laughs) (laughs) Then. Um, he said, but, uh, you know, I'm with this singer, this young singer, right? Oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just here we go. And I want her to play the role of Melisande. So Debussy heard her and he was like, okay, you know, we can do that. That's cool. But then later, <laughs> once it got started to get staged and you, you're working with an opera company and a director and all this stuff. They wanted to bring in this young Scottish singer and Debussy heard her and was just like blown away. He was like, I could never have dreamed of such a voice. This is Melisande, blah, blah, blah. So then Maeterlinck finds out about this and like hits the wall and threatens. I'm not kidding you. Threatens to beat up Debussy. And uh, threatens legal action and then disassociates himself with the whole production and badmouths it and badmouths Debussy and all stuff. So, you know, there's not only this drama going on in the drama, there's drama going on, you know, outside the drama. And, uh, you know, a lot of stuff like that happened. It's just, you know, it's kind of interesting. But... uh, you know, the the main plot of this is kind of this love triangle, you know, where this this prince named Gulad finds Melisande out in the forest, <clears throat> kind of destitute or whatever, and falls in love with her, brings her back to the castle where he lives with his younger half-brother, Peleos. And then, you know, Peleos and Melisande start hanging out <clears throat> and things start to get you know, past entangled, past friendly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, you know, eventually Gulad sort of figures it out and rushes in on him and kills Peleos and then stabs Melisanda. And, um, but he's not sure you know, he didn't really see anything happen. So he's really kind of not sure, 
you know, oh my, did I jump to conclusions? Were they, was there really anything going on? And this whole time, Melisande is pregnant, right? <laughs> and so during the last scene, like she's dying and like she gives birth to this daughter and, uh, you know, the, the prince is like crying and all this stuff. He doesn't, he doesn't know if what he did was quote unquote, right. You know, and, um, he's begging her to tell him the truth and she won't. And then she dies and he lives the rest of his life in misery and, all, you know, just like, yeah, sounds like, yeah. sounds like an opera. Yeah. So it's, 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 you know, it's, it's an opera. It's an opera for sure. Um, so, uh, you know, don't go if you're expecting, you know, the feel good thing of the year. Oh, because no. it's not. <laughs> it's not uh, Sleepless in Seattle, you know, no. that way. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the first track that we're going to listen to is um, from Act Two, Scene One. And uh, in this scene, um, I think what's going on is uh, Peleas and Melisande are hanging out by this well outside the castle and they're just talking about things and Peleus is asking her about when Gulad you know discovered her in the woods and all this stuff and while this is going on um, Melisande is playing with this ring that the prince gave her (laughs) and she's playing it and sort of throwing it up in the air and then right at the as the clock strikes noon got all this symbolism in there the ring falls into the well (laughs) And she freaks out and, you know, oh, what am I going to tell him and blah, blah, blah. And Peleus says, you tell him the truth and all this stuff. And that's so that's what's going on right here. Um, but there's all kinds of that kind of going on. This these sort of foreshadowing, these, this, this kind of symbolic stuff that's happening. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I need to I need to see the visual. I guess I, I, guess I have to go. Well, that's so opera. Yeah, that's so important with with opera, because when you just listen to it on a CD, you're missing at least 50 percent of what's what's going going on. on. It's it's almost like, yeah, it's almost like just sitting and and listening to the soundtrack from a movie and not watching the picture. You know, yeah, it's really I mean, that's that's kind of what it's like. Um, Yeah. But uh but yeah, we can hear the music and at least in, in sort of Debussy's style and stuff like that. So um, yeah, so let's check out this first track from Peleus at Melisande. This is from Act Two, Scene One. On étouffe aujourd'hui même à l'ombre des arbres. Elle est fraîche comme l'hiver. C'est une vieille fontaine abandonnée. Il paraît que c'était une fontaine miraculeuse. Elle ouvrait les yeux des aveugles. L'appelle encore la fontaine des aveugles. Elle n'ouvre plus les yeux des aveugles. Depuis que le roi est presque aveugle lui-même, on n'y vient plus. Comme on est seul ici, on n'entend rien. Il y a toujours un silence extraordinaire. On entendrait dormir l'eau. 
Voulez-vous vous asseoir au bord du bassin de Marathon Il y a tilleul où le soleil n'entre jamais. Jamais vu, elle est peut-être aussi profonde que la mer. C'est quelque chose à briller de fond, on ne verrait peut-être. Ne penchez pas ainsi, je voudrais toucher l'eau. Prenez garde de glisser, je vais vous tenir par la main. Non, non, je voudrais y plonger les deux mains. Prenez garde, prenez garde, Mélisande, Mélisande. Oh, votre chevelure. Je ne peux pas, je ne peux pas l'atteindre. Vos cheveux sont plongés dans l'eau. Oui, ils sont plus longs que mes bras. And we just heard Act 2, Scene 1 from Peleus at Melisande, and we're going to move on to listening to part of the final scene from Act 5. And basically, this is the scene where Melisande is in a bed in the castle with Gulad. This is after he's like killed Peleus and stabbed her, and she's in the bed giving birth to this daughter. And... Mm. um so she's basically had has given birth and she's like slowly dying and Gulad is like begging her to tell him the truth. Was there really something going on between you and Pelias or did I make a mistake or I'm so sorry? And he's like sobbing and freaking out and she's just basically not, she's not doing it. You know, she's not yeah. fessing up to anything and um, she dies and so he's tormented, you know, and et cetera. <laughs> so this is this is what's going on in this scene. Um, and it's it's the part where he's begging her. So there's other people in the room. He asks them to leave, it's like attendants and nurses and a doctor or something, and he asks everybody to leave so he can sort of confront her about this and that that's what's going on here. So yeah. <laughs> and it, it's like you said, it's 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 not a it's not a happy ending. Obviously, it's you know it's <laughs> no. very complicated. It's yeah. very sad. It's very tragic. Typical of you know a lot of operas, and and like I said, the the music you know, I guess kind of notates that. I mean, and I originally when I listened, I had I really had no clue what was going on, you know. But now you know, trying to think about the scene and think about you know the music along with it, you know, it gives it obviously a new perspective. So, you know, that's one of the things with, with opera, obviously, where you, if you, if you don't see the visual, then it's, you know, like you said, it's, it's only half of yeah. what you may think is going on. Sometimes, I mean, you know, the music may lend a hint to, you know, what's going on, but in this case, you know, not necessarily. Yes. But. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's check this out. This cool. last track from Claude Debussy's Pelias at Melisande. Um, this is from Act Five. as-tu pitié de moi comme j'ai pitié de toi? Mélisande, me pardonnes-tu? Mélisande. 
Je t'ai fait tant de mal, Mélisande. Je ne puis pas te dire le mal que je t'ai fait. Mais je le vois, je le vois si clairement aujourd'hui, depuis le premier jour. Et tout est de ma faute, tout ce qui est arrivé, tout ce qui va arriver. Si je pouvais le dire, tu verrais comme je le vois, je vois tout, je vois tout. Mais je t'aimais tant, je t'aimais tant. Mais maintenant, quelqu'un va mourir, c'est moi qui vais mourir. Je voudrais savoir, je voudrais te demander, tu ne m'en voudras pas. Il faut dire la vérité à quelqu'un qui va mourir. Il faut qu'il sache la vérité, sans cela il ne pourrait pas dormir. Me jures-tu de dire la vérité. And we just heard a scene from Act 5 from Peleas et Melisande, and that's going to do it for 1000 Recordings Podcast number 55. If you want to send us an email, send it to 1000 Recordings Podcast at gmail.com. You can go to our website at blogspot, uh, sorry, 1000rp.blogspot.com. You can join us on Twitter at 1000rp. And you can also join us on Facebook. We also have a page on Patreon if you want to rec- to uh, support the podcast and help us in costs, uh, production costs, and cost of uh, buying the music that we play on the show, etc. Um, you can head over to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash 1000RP. And uh, if you'd like to help us again further... Go to iTunes and leave us a review and a rating, and that'll help us reach more people. And we'll read your review on the air. So, yeah. So, what do we got coming up next week? More Debussy. We've got more Debussy, some of his piano preludes we're going to talk about. Then we've got um, The Decemberists, their album The Crane Wife. And then De Danon with Mary Black, Song for Ireland, some Celtic music. So that's what we have coming up next week. Yeah. Cool. Next next week, maybe. <laughs> ne- next, well, next time, I guess. Next yeah. time. Yeah. Next time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Any parting words? Um, <laughs> we finally no. finished our Miles Davis Odyssey. Yep. That was that was fun, <laughs> and uh, you know some good stuff coming in the next couple of shows. Very good uh, lineup of uh, music and stuff to talk about. So looking forward to that. Yeah, cool man. All right, well, um, I'll we'll both see you all next time to to talk about some more cool music from Tom Moon's book later. All right, bye bye. <laughs>